Morning, everyone. It's um, good to be with you for the penultimate session. I heard Ed, Eddie have a heart attack over there. Ephraim's supposed to be doing the old age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you how much of a joy it really is to have been with you for this weekend. And um, yeah, just such an encouragement to my heart. And it's a real privilege to be sharing with you again. And as Victoria mentioned, my desire is that um, as a result of our time together, we will be bolder in our witness. Um, There's no doubt as we've considered how we're able to develop greater confidence in gospel conversations. um, uh, Number three, thanks, Edmund. Um, We've considered how you might rehearse your story not just saying it, but thinking it through. And as I was, um, I, I, was, I was challenged yesterday by Jill, who um, said, you know, do, do remember not to uh, have those who have grown up in church feel as though that, you know, they haven't got a story in the way that others might have. Um, there are so many people who have grown up in church and known the Lord from childhood, because that's the environment they've grown up in. And I said, yes and amen. Uh, And the statistics bear that out. Uh, In the recent report, 33% of people who came to faith, came to faith in their childhood as a result of being in a Christian family. So we thank God for Christian families. And it's still a story to tell. Still a story to tell. And yet, um, we considered how to approach conversations with a listen-first type of approach, um, ready to, to probe and cause others to have the, the burden of responsibility to actually defend their claims rather than feeling under pressure to defend ours. And all with the goal of helping people move ever closer to Jesus. The reality is that all of this only results in results, if I can say it like that, when we actually put it into action. And that requires a boldness. And that that boldness isn't being brash or being loud. It's the application of courage into action. And you may have heard it said that courage isn't the absence of fear. It is doing it anyway, as one person said. And so we may feel, you know, quite... Anxious, uncertain, when we're speaking to others who we're unfamiliar with, or sometimes, as um, somebody said, I think it was yesterday, the hardest people to speak to can be your own family. And yet, nonetheless, we're called to be bold. And I'm led to think of uh, a brother that I heard speaking about his experience swimming with sharks. Uh, a, a children's author, and Christian, called N.D. Greer. And he said, you know, he, he went swimming with sharks for the first time. And, you know, he was very nervous. And his instructor said to him, okay, you're going to be swimming with sharks. And by the way, there's no cage. This, this was free swimming. Um, when the sharks come by you, what you're supposed to do is, is lean into them. Don't, don't cower and... and Drop, lean into them as they come near and, and they'll swim off. 
And he said, you know, the first shark came by and he was wondering, is this going to work? And and he leaned into it with intention and it swam off. And he was like, oh, it does work. And so his swim continued. And there's a sense in the call to be bold for us to, to lean into the challenge, to lean into the opportunities and see how God works. And yet, slide four, our boldness isn't derived from our willingness, our convincing ourselves, I I can, I can, I know I can, I will, I will, I know I will, but our boldness is derived from Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the central claim of Christianity and That might sound kind of weird. The central claim is a person, but yes, it's true. Because our faith isn't based on mere propositions and assertions, ideas and concepts. It's based on the person of Jesus Christ. And so, let's consider Jesus. Let's consider Jesus, who he is, what he's achieved, And how that's been communicated to us in order that we might derive confidence. And before I go any further, I'm going to talk to Jesus, if that's all right. Lord, truly you are our confidence. And we're grateful to know that you are ever present by your spirit, as it were with your hand around us, your arm around our shoulders, walking with us, talking with us, present with us, our risen saviour. We thank you and we pray that as we reflect on who you are and what you've done, how you've been communicated to us and the work of your spirit in our hearts, that Lord, you would help us, help us to be bold. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, the Apostle Paul stated this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, primary importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the what? And I'll just making sure you're awake. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. There's a different rendition of those same sentiments in Romans chapter 1. As we look at verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the... Amen. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we see here that the Apostle Paul is verifying his claim as an objective reality. This isn't just something that has been a personal experience. This isn't just a personal message. But this is an objective reality. And as such, it is grounded in history. And so, as you rightly quoted, Paul was making appeal to scripture. Now, obviously, we read the scriptures and we have the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament was in its formative stages. Evidently, Paul was writing the New Testament by the Spirit of the Lord. And so when he's speaking of the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, the predictions and prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, which were fulfilled in and by Christ. He's exposing the heritage of this message. This isn't a new story. This is something that those who know have been anticipating. And it's bigger than any of us who are declaring it. It's got roots in God's work of old. And as we stand today, we stand in the same place as those who are declaring a message that is bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than our generation and has roots in the historic work of God that finds its summation in Christ. And so we're able to have confidence in that. That actually, as we're declaring this gospel message of Jesus Christ, it is not a message that is just of our time. I was having a conversation with some young people and we were talking about, you know, how do we approach the, the scriptures? And they said, well, times change. And so doesn't that affect the way that we read the scriptures? And I said, well, the scriptures say in Hebrews that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this is the unchanging word of an unchanging God. In that we are able to have confidence that God's word is true. And so, having stated that in the opening verses of Romans 1, it gives context to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Have you ever wondered why Paul might have felt the inclination to be ashamed or the, the, the need to highlight the fact that he's not ashamed? As he's writing to those in Rome, the center of the empire, those who had 
receive Christ amongst a, a, a society who worshipped emperors with great coliseums and the seat of power of the empire being right there. And yet, as Christians, they worshipped a killed carpenter from a backwater called Nazareth. And yet, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel with this recognition that this is bigger than myself. This is bigger than my generation. This is bigger than my locality. This is bigger than our experience. This focuses on Jesus, who is the summation of all God's intentions since the creation of the world. The good news of Jesus is the power of God. Someone say power. Power. Someone say power. Power. Come on, preach with me today. (laughs) That power that transforms lives is the same power that gives us boldness to declare its message. There is inherent power in the gospel. That, That kind of power that was present when God said, let there be light. God spoke the word and it was so. The gospel is God's. God's story of himself. It's his word with inherent power laden within it. And as we embrace and as we absorb and as we saturate ourselves in the gospel and as we allow it to pour out of us, that power will come flooding forth. Now, in our call to be bold, to be declarative, we have to give consideration to, actually, how does that connect for those who don't know God? How does this message of the gospel connect with those? How do we make it mean something to them who have no interest or regard for Christ. We understand that the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand that it is the good news of his saving work, giving himself for sinners. But how might they understand that? Um, Slide nine, please. Uh, In 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle Peter says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It's beautiful the way that it it resonates and harmonizes with those verses we were looking at in Colossians. About being smart and being nice. Being bold. Being tactical. And yet there's that sense of being prepared to give an answer, an answer specifically and particularly when people ask you the reason for the hope. Why do you believe? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why should I believe in Jesus? (laughs) 
Well, we appreciate that the message of Christ is contained and carried in the scriptures that God has preserved for us. And we understand that to be the word of God, but not just because we are told so. Not just because it kind of makes sense to us. Or as somebody once said, because the word works. Let's listen to some voices from history. Um, In response to the question, uh, slide 10, please. Uh, Why should I believe in Jesus? And so on the next slide, we will meet Professor, Doctor, Doctor, Doctor. (laughs) Just in case you were uncertain that he's a doctor. Three doctorates. Simon Greenleaf. For those who work in law, um, it's probably a name that you're familiar with, come across maybe. And he wrote... The Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which is a three-volume work and still considered today to be among one of the greatest works on the matter of evidence in the history of jurisprudence. And on the next slide, we see that in his book, The Testimony of the Evangelists, examined by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. How's that for a book title? (laughs) he says Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are good men testifying to that which they had carefully observed and considered and well knew to be true they hide nothing have you ever been in a situation when you've needed a legal opinion because you trust the, the veracity, you have confidence in the, 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 the knowledge and integrity that is in, contained in that opinion. This is a legal opinion. When you consider the means by which the word of God and the New Testament in particular has been transmitted to us as manuscripts through history, this is a brief snapshot of the way in which the New Testament writings compare to other ancient writings and the way in which not only are we able to have greater confidence because of the number of copies. If you look at the top of that, if you're able to see it from where you are, it speaks of Caesar and the writings pertaining to Caesar, whom we all kind of take as... Um, Just standard fare in our view of history. And it says that there were 10 copies, 10 manuscripts pertaining to the person of Caesar. And yet you compare that to the New Testament. And and this is a conservative um, count. It's 24,000 manuscripts. It has been said that if you are to doubt the integrity of the New Testament as literature, 
you'd have to you'd have to doubt and throw out all other historic writings. We have confidence not just because of the number of copies, but also the shorter the time span between the original, which is known as the autograph, and the first set of manuscripts, which you see in the second to last column, suggests that there is a higher probability of greater accuracy. If I've written down something today and then I tell someone else tomorrow who writes it down, it's more likely to be accurate than if I write something down today, tell someone in a year's time, and then they write it down. And then you begin to multiply that. Now, in an oral tradition, they were used to sharing stories consistently. But when you compare the time span between the original autograph and the copy, you see that the early Christians got to copying quickly. They were writing copies within the lifetime of the participants in the stories. Hence, the Apostle Paul saying in the, the verses that we read in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he, he, Jesus was revealed alive in his resurrection to more than 500 people all at once, some of whom are still alive. Implicit, you can go and ask them. Now, there were those historians who sought to contest the integrity of the New Testament. And they said that we can't find Pontius Pilate in history. And this was the case up until 1961. And then came the Pilate inscription, a, a piece of limestone with an inscription which bears the name Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. And so all those historians that were using that as an opportunity to sort of rubbish the scriptures and rubbish the New Testament and this central figure who sentenced Jesus to death, he's not even mentioned in history. And then archaeology exposes the fact that he was actually known in his time. And yet, These are things that help to corroborate the authenticity and authority of the scriptures. The authority of the scriptures are not defined by these things because the scriptures are God's word. And so anything that would define that the authority outside of God would suggest that those references are greater than God himself. And there's none greater than God. And God has affirmed his word through works and wonders. And yet these things corroborate the truth and authority of the scripture. And in such a way that God in his providence allows to give us greater confidence as we engage with his word. Now, I mentioned that God has caused his word to be authored and affirmed through words and works. 
works and wonders. And this is no less true when we look at the matter of prophecy. I'm going to skip to 16, please, Edmund. Thanks. When we consider prophecy, we recognize that it is the fingerprint of the divine. Now, Alfred Edersheim was a historian who wrote on the life of Christ. And in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ, he said that Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies in his first coming. That's a lot of prophecies being fulfilled. There was a professor who said, okay, look, with his um, statistics group, we're going to analyze some prophecies and do a a probability exercise to, to, to evaluate the probability of these prophecies being fulfilled. And they took eight prophecies, the time of Jesus' birth, Daniel 9, place of birth, Micah 5, his family lineage, which is all over the scriptures fundamentally, but we, 2 Samuel 7, the act of betrayal that he would experience, Zechariah 11, the experience of being crucified, Psalm 22, the fact that he was killed with thieves, Isaiah 53, that his bones wouldn't be broken, Exodus 12, and his clothing would be gambled for, Psalm 22. And looking at those and even looking at the variables that are beyond the subject's control, Jesus couldn't control where he would be born, who his family would be, when he would be born. And so they conducted this probability exercise and they said, actually... For these eight prophecies to be fulfilled exactly in the way that they were would equate to the probability of a number that is 10 to the power of 17. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. I don't know. How, it can, how do you describe that number? I don't know. <laughs> big. Thank you, Nigel. Yes, very big. And they said in, in practical terms, what does that mean? They said it's like taking... A a mountain of two pence pieces. Uh, They they said silver dollars. It was at US University. And and covering the whole of the UK two foot high with two pence pieces. The whole of the UK. Lands into John O'Groats. And then marking one of those two P pieces, putting it somewhere, anywhere, randomly within that whole mountain of two pence pieces, blindfolding someone, taking them up in a plane, dropping them out by parachute, and them landing, blindfolded, and picking up that marked two pence right the first time. When they went on to consider a broader scope and selection, 48 prophecies, They said it was 10 to the power of 157. Now, bearing in mind, as I said, Alfred Edersheim says that Jesus fulfilled 456. And so in this, we recognize that 
The prophetic hallmark is very clear and rings true with integrity as it relates to the hallmark of the divine, the fingerprints of God on his word. Now, there is a miracle that isn't mentioned, a fulfillment of prophecy that isn't mentioned there. And the reality is that, although it could be considered, it doesn't really make sense to consider it because it's not a matter of probability. It's not an improbable situation. It's an impossible situation. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Never in the history of humanity has it been known that someone has died and after three days come back from the dead. People may have been resuscitated, but they've never been resurrected. There's a difference. Um, The next slide, please, Edmund, thanks. Tim Keller says this. If Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Another legal mind for you on the next slide. So Lionel Luckhu was regarded as the most successful lawyer in the world and was a former atheist. He is quoted in the Guinness Guinness Book of Records as having won 245 consecutive murder case acquittals. (laughs) (laughs) He was honoured four times by the Queen, knighted twice and was once an ambassador for two sovereign nations simultaneously, and the only person to have done such. And so Lionel says this on the next slide. As one who bases his belief in Christ as saviour on the evidence, he says, I unequivocally... Sorry, I say unequivocally the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof. Proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. He goes on to say on the next slide. Jesus made the most amazing statement anyone has ever made. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. He then went to the cross and rose again three days after he had died. The testimony of the resurrection is the irrefutable sum total of God's testimony as it relates to the deity of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is why we see 
in Romans 1. The Apostle Paul referred to that as the, 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 the sign of validation. In the NIV it reads in verse 4, And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He was designated, he was affirmed, he was sealed, he was verified as the Son of God by means of his resurrection from the dead. On the next slide, 21, thanks. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, wrote the Apostle John. At the end of his gospel, he says in verse 31, chapter 20, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, our boldness doesn't rely on our strength of intention. God has said in the scriptures that he will not leave himself without a witness. And the witness and testimony of the scriptures are utterly voracious, unequivocal, And such that it's true for all who are willing to believe. C.S. Lewis said, there is sufficient evidence to convince anyone who is willing to believe. And when open-hearted, honest individuals engage with the scriptures, submit into the work of God's spirit, they then... Two, come to that place of understanding. See the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior. And yet it takes a work of God's Spirit. Because in Romans 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, but God has made it plain to them. Let me read that again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Because God has made it plain to them. And so all people are created with an innate, inbuilt sense of the existence of God. There's an awareness. As we look at creation, verse 20, it speaks of God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. And yet people suppress that truth. Often when explaining this, we use the analogy of a, of, a, of a beach ball and it being held down underwater as a, as a picture of suppression. 
And people suppress that truth because our natural inclination isn't toward the Lord. And yet the Lord is much greater than our natural inclination. Which is why we're all here today. Because of God's work through his word by his spirit. Enlightening our understanding. Transforming our hearts. Drawing us to himself. And so. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let us say with the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let us say with the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed. Amen. Amen. For it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. And so as we conclude, I want to, um, I said yesterday that there will be an opportunity to share our story. But I want to do it a little bit differently at this point. And this is going to maybe call for some boldness, some exercising of that boldness. I would love if I could get two volunteers, two volunteers to, woo, I haven't even said what for yet. (laughs) Come and join me if you would. Praise be to God. Remind me of your name, sis. Sally Ann. Make some noise for Sally Ann as she comes up. Praise God. Boldness. Not sitting back at all. Um, so that leaves one other. And, and I would like to say, uh, I feel that, guys, you can't let the side down. I would be... Expi- oh, look. Come on, my brother. Come on up. Praise God. Remind me of your name? Prince. Prince. Yeah. Amen. Prince Salian. So, can I give you each three minutes and a microphone? Which one should I use? The one on the lectern. Okay, yeah. So, just step to the lectern and um, share your story with us, if you would. Okay. Amen. Salian, everyone. Okay. <laughs> When we were sharing our story yesterday, I was um, really struck by how grateful I am that we're all here together today and how much every person here means to me. And um, I think because I was sharing my story with Jean, I'm, I'm probably one of the only people who has come to know Christ in the way that I have. So I've been coming to St. John's for um, about 11 or 12 years now. And before I came to St. John's, I, I didn't really have a faith. I had I, <clears throat> been to a convent as a child, but I hadn't really kind of grasped what it meant to be a Christian. So I came into recovery about 12 years ago now, uh, went into rehab for alcoholism, came out a different person, and still didn't have a clue what I was going to do when I came out. But I managed to finish my degree, get my job, etc., etc. And my dad was very proud of me. He actually died, but 
I remember how proud he was that I'd got through that year in my life. And in the summertime, um, I thought I really need to, to find a church because I need to fill my spiritual desire with, um, with God um, because it's a spiritual program that we follow in AA. So um, I had to write a letter to God in rehab and I was like, well, where do I start and so I remembered as a, as a child praying to God at, at the convent. So I started with that. And then I, I, I was at home one, one Sunday and I thought, I really want to join a church. So I'd rung a few in Blackheath and no, nowhere really felt right to me. And I found St. John's website and I walked in the church, very nervous, as you can imagine, and somebody said, hello, are you new? I said, yes, I'm new. And they said, would you like to sit next to somebody who's a regular? I said, oh, yes, please. And I sat next to Fiona, who now has her husband and, and lovely children. So I sat next to her, and she seemed quite, you know, to know what she was doing and, you know, quite confident. And I met with God as soon as I sat down. The Holy Spirit um, made his way to me, and that was it. So... Um, I knew then I was in the right place, and since then, uh, my life has just got better and better and better, and um, I love being in St. John's, and for me, it was quite an easy path, and uh, I was saying to Ephraim how I wish there was more people like me who are in recovery, who also have a faith, but in AA, we don't stipulate any faith, we just say spiritual program or higher power, but for me, it's God. Um, and I was confirmed when I joined St. John's. Peter took me under his wing. I was very lucky. I've made amazing friends in the church. And, uh, yeah, I'm just very glad that I made that decision. And, yes, thank you. Amen. Well done. Well done. Um, I thank God because... Knowing Christ is a very tricky way for me because, uh, like I shared yesterday, when we were born, I was privileged to attend the Anglican school in the city where I was born. But as I was growing up, I become the black sheep in the house, and uh, I deviated. Although my parents were not church-going, but they strictly have belief of God. And uh, the most thing that struck me, mostly when I become a Christian, all my family, they were jubilating the day they heard of it. And uh, in 2015, after being in this country for 11 years plus, and I traveled back home, three days prompt to me coming back to England, I called my dad, and I said, I'm coming back. Do you still want to see me? He said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have to drive from the city to meet him. And uh, he said, he needs something from me, a Bible. I said, but Dad, you don't know how to read. He said, yes, you need a big one with a bold words. I said, for what? He said, whenever you are coming back, I said, but my brother and sister, they, they are doing enough, they can buy it. He said, no, 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 I want you to buy it. Hmm. And I put him in my mind. 2016, when I went back, I was able to get a bigger Bible with a bold word. And when I presented it to him, he was sitting, and the moment he received it, he just stand up on his feet. He said it in my language, I will say it and I will translate it. 
whatever God has created will be no more. But this God himself will be forever. And I was shocked. And to God be the glory, the day he passed away, it was like a miracle. After I was baptized, and 15 minutes later, I was gone. Wow. And they placed that Bible on the seat. When I was speaking to them, I saw the Bible where he was sitting. Oh, and that gave me joy that at least I find peace knowing Christ. Amen. Story. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. So well rehearsed that we're both under three minutes. I thought we were going to have a problem with time. <laughs> Praise God. Can I encourage you to continue to be bold, to continue to tell your story, because God is at work, and we live in a, in a time where people are open-hearted, much more so maybe more than ever in our lifetimes. Can we pray? Lord, there are so many reasons for which we could feel ashamed. Not feel inclined to be bold about you. Could well be our own inadequacies and shortcomings that plague our minds. Could be the words of others, the thoughts of others. And yet, Lord, we recognize that our boldness is found in you because you are the eternal king. So my prayer, Lord, is that you would draw us all closer to you. And in our nearness to you, Lord, that sense of you would just rub off on others, that the boldness would almost be effortless because we're just so intimate with you. Help us, Lord, to set aside distractions, to put away things that are maybe even good in themselves, but that hinder us from just being fervent in our boldness. Above all, Lord, fill us with your love. Fill us with your love, the knowledge of who you are, your love for us, your love for others, that that might flow out. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing here. Thank you for the work you're doing among St. John's Blackheath. And Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd amplify that work and that many, many more would come to know your goodness. And I ask this in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.